Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Welcome to First Baptist Church, and please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, as we continue our series in the book of Mark, the show me gospel. And why is it called that? Well, because Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. Mark is the show me gospel because it emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. And these works that we see in the book of Mark are meant to show us that Jesus is who Mark says he is. And who does Mark say that Jesus is? In verse 1, we saw right from the get-go, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That was Mark's thesis statement to open his book. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that word Christ is a title. It's not a last name. It's a title that literally means anointed one. In Mark's usage, it refers to the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the one. And last week, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, King Jesus was coronated as the Christ by his baptism by John the Baptist. In Mark 1, 9 through 11, King Jesus was coronated as the Christ in his baptism by John the Baptist. But here's the thing, something we need to consider this morning. Matthew chapter 24, verse 5. Matthew says to us, he warns us, and he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So how do we know Mark is right? How do we know that this Jesus, this one who was baptized, really is the one, that he really is the Christ, and not one of these imposters that Matthew mentions here? Well, that's where today's text comes into play. In Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Jesus will prove himself to be the authentic Christ in the proving ground of the wilderness. That's a mouthful. Mark 1, 12 through 13, Jesus will prove himself to be the authentic Christ in the proving ground of the wilderness. He will show us definitively that he really is the one who even has authority over the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, how many of you are familiar with the term proving ground? Lots of you, proving ground. Well, uh, especially as it relates to cars, a proving ground is a facility where cars are tested to prove their readiness for commercial release. Now, how many of you, this would be your dream job? right? I've seen some of you drive, and some of you drive as if this is your job, and you need to get that under control. These tests at a proving ground, they're not gentle, are they? No, the whole idea is to push cars to their limits to prove that they are ready to show that they are the real deal. Chrysler has one of these facilities in Chelsea, Michigan. It's called the Chelsea Proving Ground. It covers 4,000 acres and has 100 lane miles of road surface. And they perform tests like this. 
And I don't know if you can read the caption on the, the bottom there, but it's interesting. It says, the Dodge Charger squad raced down the Chelsea Proving Grounds high-speed oval at over 140 miles per hour in a rededication ceremony for the newly surfaced track during the Michigan State Police vehicle evaluations. And then it says, note the Ford trying unsuccessfully to keep up. So obviously, the Chrysler Proving Ground comes with a certain bias. But the, the idea is that a Proving Ground is a facility where cars are tested to prove their readiness before commercial release. But it should be said that there are also military installations that go by this term. Have any of you ever served in a military installation that called itself a Proving Ground? Anybody? All right. At such facilities, soldiers are tested, pushed to their limits to prove their readiness before they go into battle. Well, what do cars and soldiers have to do with our text today? Again, in Mark 1, 12 through 13, Jesus is tested at a proving ground to demonstrate his readiness for public ministry. He himself will be pushed to the limit. And we are confronted with the question, will he pass? Will he pass the test? And what, we, what, we can, we, what can we learn from Jesus when we face our own times of testing? So, will you please stand with me as I read this very short text? It's only two verses. Mark 1, 12 through 13, in the English Standard Version, it says this. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your help this morning. This is a very short text, but boy, does it have a lot to say to us. And especially as we go through life and we ourselves face trials and temptations and tribulations, we need the lessons learned from these two verses. So God, would you meet with us this morning? Open our ears, our hearts, our eyes, our wills, and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Well, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they include the story of the temptation of Jesus, but you have probably noticed that Mark's version sure is different, isn't it? When we put the three accounts side by side, check this out. This is fascinating. So on the left, obviously, in the yellow, you've got Matthew's account. Middle, in the green, you've got Mark's account. And then on the right, in the blue, you've got Luke's account. It's actually quite staggering to see the difference in length of the different accounts. In my temptation, and I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to go back on what I said last week, my temptation is to try to help Mark's brief account, as if Mark needs my help, right? To, by, by including material from Matthew and Luke. It's like, well, we got to, poor Mark, you know, his account's so short and feeble, we need to bolster it, we need to supplement it, we need to bring in what Matthew and Luke had to say. But then I had this moment of clarity this week, kind of an aha moment when I said, wait a minute, Mark wrote his account like this for a reason, didn't he? Our job is to discover his unique points of emphasis and not try to help Mark in his pitiful little account of the temptation. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig deep into these two verses to the best of our ability and do everything we can to resist the temptation to read Matthew and Luke's account into it, which is going to be hard 
because we know our Bibles and we know generally what those accounts had to say, but this is necessary so that we can discover Mark's unique points of emphasis. So with that in mind, Mark's account breaks down into two main points. Uh, First point, Jesus was submissive to the Spirit. We'll see that in verse 12. And then Jesus was victorious over Satan in verse 13. So let's examine that first point. Jesus was submissive to the Spirit. Look with me again at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And there's Mark's favorite word again. Again, what is Mark's favorite word? Immediately. In Greek, it is euthus, used 59 times in the New Testament. 41 times of those are in the Gospel of Mark. A very, very high percentage. And then what's really fascinating, 11 of those are in Mark 1. It is a word that is intended to highlight the action of Mark's gospel, especially here in chapter 1, where Jesus never stays in any one place too long. He's constantly on the move, doing the will of the Father. And as we mentioned earlier, but it bears mentioning again, what happened immediately before today's text? All right, it was the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, a great spiritual high like none other. Okay, again, try to transport yourself to that, that event where God the Son was baptized, God, God the Spirit descended like a dove as the heavens were torn open, and then God the Father spoke from heaven. Can you imagine hearing God the Father's audible voice? All three persons of the Trinity, front and center. This was the spiritual high of all spiritual highs, culminating in verse 11, which says, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It doesn't get any better than this. And it would have been nice, especially if you're Jesus, just to bask in the glow of the moment, just to hang out there. And, you know, we, we, we compared it last week to like a presidential inauguration or a coronation of a king. And when those events take place, they have all kinds of after parties, right? They have all these after parties where they just keep partying and partying and celebrating the inauguration or the coronation. And so we, we might anticipate there'd be some kind of celebration like this, but God had other plans. And so it says in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now this is the same Holy Spirit that immediately before this came down from heaven in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus, accomplishing two very important things. That Spirit anointed Jesus as the Christ and it equipped him for ministry. And now that same Spirit is doing something quite different And I would even say quite unexpected. For it says in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out. Drove him out. That phrase, drove him out, is fascinating. It comes from the Greek, ekbalo. It's a compound word, ek, out, balo, to throw. To throw out, often with the idea of force. It is the same word that Mark uses later in the gospel when Jesus is driving out demons. When he's throwing out demons, it's a violent word, which you know, could cause us to think that Jesus was reluctant to leave the Jordan River, and he had to be forced by the Spirit to go into the wilderness, but that is not the case. Ekbalo simply communicates to us that the Spirit's prompting was a strong one. Have you ever had a strong prompting by the Holy Spirit? For many of us, when we cross that line of faith, 
and we repented of our sins and we turned to Jesus alone for forgiveness, um, your heart, that, that's how I relate it. My, my heart just started pounding. It's like, wow, this is not normal. Something's going on here. It was the Spirit. It was the Spirit speaking to me and ekbaloing me, a strong prompting of the Spirit. And many of you have had similar promptings in other circumstances and situations in your lives. That's what was going on with Jesus here. Jesus the Christ, he humbly followed this strong prompting of the Spirit. And where was it that the Spirit led? Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, we're northern Michigan people, right? That's why you're here this morning. You're not going to let six inches of snow keep you from getting to church. And we love the wilderness, don't we? That's why we put up with six months of gray, because we love the wilderness. And when we picture the wilderness, we picture something like this, don't we? I'll let you daydream there just for a minute if you want. You know, we, we picture lakes and rivers and trees primed for camping and hunting and fishing. We choose to go to the wilderness because it brings refreshment. Everybody downstate chooses to come here for the wilderness. That's why 115 is 115 on the weekends, right? Well, we choose to go to the wilderness because of refreshment, but that is not the kind of wilderness that we're talking about here in verse 12. Rather, the kind of wilderness being referred to here in verse 12 looks more like this. Not refreshing. The Palestinian wilderness was a wild, rugged, dangerous, lonely place. You didn't choose to go camping there. Instead, you would choose to avoid it as much as possible. But not Jesus. As we see here in verse 12, it's so important. Jesus was submissive to the Spirit, even when the Spirit's leading led him to this desolate wasteland of a wilderness. Jesus would obey. Next in verse 13, Jesus was victorious over Satan. Jesus was victorious over Satan. Let's go back to verse 13 now. It says, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So, Jesus has arrived at his proving ground, the place where he would be tested and pushed to the limit in order to demonstrate that he is, in fact, the one, the Christ, ready for public ministry. How long was he there? What does it say? And he was in the wilderness 40 days. 40 days. You probably know that the number 40 is often used in the Bible for times of testing and preparation, right? The number 40 pops up a lot. How long were the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. How long was Elijah in the wilderness? 40 days. How long was Moses on Mount Sinai before receiving the law? 40 days. Similarly, here we have Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days being tested and in church, we, we know 40 days is no joke, right? That's a substantial period of time. Just for reference, 40 days from right now, do you know what that is? March 10th. March 10th. 
And so during this extended period of time, this 40 days, Jesus would be put to the test in this rugged, dangerous, lonely wilderness, and the nature of this testing was very specific. Verse 13 says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Satan, a very real entity. That angel who rebelled against God and took one-third of the angels with him that are now known as demons. And Satan, that fallen angel who is now bent on doing everything he can to sabotage God's kingdom and to steal his glory. Jesus said this about Satan. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Those are the words of Jesus, acknowledging the reality of Satan and his deep, deep passion to bring destruction to our lives. And as one commentator said, Satan is the inveterate, implacable, relentless, ruthless, remorseless, merciless, heartless, pitiless, cruel, hard, harsh, hardened, incorrigible, dedicated enemy of God and man. That ought to get our attention this morning to remind us. Sometimes we can just kind of get busy Sail along, doing our thing, and forget. We're not vigilant. We're not on guard. Satan is every bit as real as the chair that you are sitting on. He is the enemy of your soul, and he is bent on your destruction. As it says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now that's pretty graphic, isn't it? And alarming. How would you feel if you walked out of church today and encountered a roaring lion? You know what? You will. You will. Such is our spiritual reality. And verse 13 identifies one of Satan's primary weapons against us. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, being tempted. That word tempted comes from the Greek peirazzo. And and this was interesting to me. It just simply means to test for the purpose of ascertaining quality. So you'll notice peirazzo is really a morally neutral term. And depending on the context, it can mean either to test or to tempt. You see, Satan tempts us to bring out the bad. But God tests us to bring out the good. So every perazzo in our lives has great potential for either good or bad, for victory or defeat. And here it needs to be said that, you know this, but in this context it needs to be said, God does not cause temptation. God does not tempt us to do evil the way that Satan does. However, God does allow temptation. God is sovereign Nothing comes to us without first passing through him. That includes temptation. I think a great example of this is the Garden of Eden, where God allowed Satan in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve as part of a test. Now, we know how that story ends, right? Sadly, tragically, Adam and Eve failed the test. They gave in to Satan's temptation. And now we have here in Mark 1, and I just love it when Scripture fits together, okay? Watch this. Here in Mark 1, Jesus is the second Adam being confronted with the very same test as he is being tempted by Satan. The first Adam was tempted where? In the garden. The second Adam is being tested through temptation where? 
in a wilderness. And Mark goes on to give some graphic detail about that wilderness in verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. What's Mark trying to say to us by adding that little tag on? He was with the wild animals. I I think he's simply trying to convey how intense this time of testing was. Just how wild this wilderness was. Wild animals in that region included wild boars, jackals, wolves, foxes, leopards, and hyenas. So here's Jesus, all alone, no food, no shelter, no weapons. He's on his own, engaged in a most intense time of testing. He's dealing literally with both a spiritual lion and physical lions all at the same time. But as we know, he wasn't really alone, was he? Because verse 13 concludes by saying this, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I think that phrase is really the key to the whole thing. The angels were ministering to him. This reminds us that there are all around us all the time There is an invisible spiritual realm that we cannot see where there is, in fact, a spiritual war that is raging. A spiritual war defined by Tony Evans like this. He says, spiritual warfare is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. And he goes on to say, everything visible and physical is the result of something invisible and spiritual. Therefore, only by addressing the invisible spiritual cause can we fix what is wrong with our visible physical lives. Now, we talked about spiritual warfare a few months back. We did the armor of God, and we made this point, but we need to be reminded of it on a regular basis. How much time and energy have we all wasted by trying to fight physical battles when the root of the problem is invisible? And spiritual. Again, a few months back, use the example of the lopping off of the heads of dandelions. But boy, wouldn't you love to see a dandelion right now? Oh God, give me a lawn full of dandelions right now. It would be wonderful. You lop off the heads of the dandelions, what happens? They just come back with, with a vengeance. They come back even more because we haven't dealt with the root of the dandelion. And the same is true in our lives. We spend so much time lopping off heads of dandelions, dealing with physical things, but not the spiritual, ignoring the truth of Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, church, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the action is. That's where the difference is made. That's where the battle is won in the spiritual realm. That's why prayer matters so much. And so to this end, it says in 1 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, and we do, I see you, you see me, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy Strongholds. Oh, I love that, that, that phraseology. The weapons of our warfare have divine power. Church, you have divine power available to you. 
weapons, which include the, the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God who lives inside of you. How powerful is He? Omnipotent. You have the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And as we see here, there are angels. Angels, which though we cannot see them, do you know that there are angels in this room right now? We don't think about that a whole lot, do we? Remember the story of Elisha and his servant? They were facing a very real physical battle. Listen, this is not to make light of the fact that we have very real physical circumstances. We got bills to pay, don't we? We got sickness. We got all kinds of physical stuff that we deal with. So it's not to make light of that. But here's Elisha and his servant facing a very physical battle. But then 2 Kings 6.15 says this, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Some of you, that's, that's your question this morning. What am I going to do? It's like there's an army and chariots coming against me. There's no hope. What are we going to do? And Elisha said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Who were driving those chariots of fire? Angels, the hosts of heaven, God's warriors coming to the aid of Elijah and his servant. And now in Mark chapter 1, those angels are coming to the wilderness to the aid of Jesus in the spiritual battle, and they will do the same for you. Reminding us the encouraging truth contained in Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's us. We are those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are ministering spirits that God sends to serve us and to help us in our time of need. I hope that encourages you today. The armies of heaven are ready and able to come to your aid in spiritual battle, just as they did for Jesus. Well, interestingly, Mark's account, you'll notice, of the temptation of Jesus, unlike the others, it never explicitly states that Jesus overcame Satan. Did you notice that? It just kind of ends. It just says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him, period, the end. So how, how do we really know from Mark that Jesus was victorious over Satan? I, I believe that we can draw this conclusion with confidence due to the fact that angels were ministering to him is the last word. Because one thing we know from Scripture is that God's angel armies don't lose right? They will win in the end. We spend a whole long time in the book of Revelation talking about how all this is going to wrap up. God wins and agents of his winning are these angelic armies. They win because God wins. They will win then. They win today. And they won in the wilderness coming to the aid of Jesus. Why? Because they're God's angels. It's not about the angels themselves. It's about whose they are, whose they belong to. And the same is true for us. It's not about us. It's about who we belong to and his infinite resources. 
which means that in the wilderness, the mission was accomplished. Jesus proved himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and, of course, I I throw this picture up there as much as I can because I like it so much. He's the second Adam. He's the second Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed. My obligatory weekly Warren Wiersbe quote, here it is. The first Adam failed the test in a lovely garden while the last Adam overcame the enemy in a terrible wilderness. And once again, I just love how the Bible fits together. What beautiful symmetry. It's almost as if it had one author, isn't it? All right, with all that in mind, let's focus on application and ask the question, how should we then live? Now, I've only got, there's spots for three of these in your notes this morning. We're only going to have two. Point number one is this. Choose the wilderness. Choose the wilderness. The way that Jesus did when prompted by the Spirit. Jesus made a choice. He made a choice to follow the Spirit and that strong compulsion to follow the Spirit's leading to the wilderness. We need to be in the same way, able and willing to choose those places that are uncomfortable, that are desolate, and maybe even dangerous. It is there that you will be tested for your good and for God's glory. This prayer by the psalmist that caught my attention this week, it challenges me. Psalm 26, verse 2. He says, Prove me, O Lord. And try me, test my heart and my mind. That's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Are you willing to pray that? I believe every true disciple of Jesus Christ longs to be like Jesus. That's the whole point. That's by definition what a disciple is. A disciple is an apprentice of the master. The apprentice longs to become like the master. Well, in order to become like the master, we need to be tested like the master. We need to go through our own wilderness experiences like the master, where as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and God's angels who come to our aid, we, like Jesus... Fight the spiritual battle in the wilderness. A true disciple is willing to go wherever in the wilderness the Spirit leads, no matter how uncomfortable it may be. I pray that many of you today will be led by the Spirit to this place. Anybody recognize that place? That is a hallway at Franklin Elementary School. Now, is that dangerous? And kind of feel like it, right? You kids hope mentors, you, you probably remember with great vividness the first time that you walked through that door and entered those hallways, don't you? It wasn't comfortable, was it? It wasn't easy. And you, you probably felt to some degree like, I am I'm entering the wilderness and um, maybe even surrounded by some wild animals, right? <laughs> but you followed the Spirit's lead. And aren't you glad you did? Those of you who are wearing those t-shirts this morning, aren't you glad you did? Because not only have those students that you've mentored grown, but you yourself have grown as you stepped out in faith and went where it was uncomfortable. You see, when we follow the Spirit's lead and submit ourselves to seasons of pressure, the result is that of 
the process where coal plus pressure, what's the result? It becomes diamonds. But you've got to have the pressure. You've got to have the pressure. And in the Christian life, there's it, those times of pressure and of testing like Jesus experienced in the wilderness, that, that proving ground that makes us like Christ. You can't become like Christ without it. Or as it says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and I believe the implication is, yes, it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. I love that. The tested genuineness of your faith. Anybody can have faith when it's easy. You might argue that's not really faith at all. Really, it's only faith when it's tested. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we follow the Spirit into the wilderness for testing, the result is growth and becoming like Christ. It is an essential element of a true disciple of Jesus. So how should we then live? Number one, choose the wilderness. Number two, Cheat on the test. Probably never heard a pastor say that before, right? And how interesting that I would say that on Kids Hope Sunday when we actually have our friends from Franklin here. Um, What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus has already taken the test, hadn't he? He's already passed it. In fact, he did more than pass it. He aced it. And here's the thing. He is more than willing to take our test for us. You've heard of those, some scandals in recent years where people are hired to take the SAT for someone else. Um, they do that so that the individual paying gets a better score, so they'll get into a better college. Well, in a kind of a warped, twisted way, that's a pretty good description of how we as Christians overcome temptation. We are to depend upon the one who already took the test and knows all the answers. And he will give us every resource of heaven to pass the test. You know, when you take a test in school, eyes on your paper, don't look around, don't talk to anyone, don't get information from anyone. This is the opposite. We are to look at Jesus, the one who already took the test and knows the answers, and he will give us the answers, and he will give us every resource we need to ace the test ourselves. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That's a bold statement made there. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Sometimes I think Satan wants to make us feel like we're the only one who has ever had that thought. We're the only one who ever struggles that way. He wants to isolate us. He wants to put us all alone. But here we're reminded, you know what? Jesus was there first. Jesus knows what that that struggle is like, what that temptation is like. But he won. He overcame. He was victorious. You see, this is interesting to me. Jesus was identified with sinners in his baptism. We talked about that last week. Now we see he was identified with sinners in their temptations. All of this is him coming in the flesh and being part of this human experience that we all share together. And then as Hebrews 2.18 says... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to give us the answers to the test. He's able to give us every resource we need to ace it. He's been there and done that. 
And now he's ready to take the test for us if we would let him. That's where it breaks down. Our problem is that we keep insisting on taking the test ourselves and predictably we keep failing. We don't have to. We don't have to. We have all the resources of heaven at our disposal to be victorious the way Jesus was victorious in the wilderness. So how should we then live? Number one, choose the wilderness. Number two, cheat on the test. Let's pray. Father, wake us up this morning. Wake us up to the reality of the spiritual realm. Wake us up to the reality of demons and Satan and his desire, not more than his desire, his life's mission is for our destruction. Wake us up to that reality And may we stop lopping heads off of dandelions. May we get down to the root of the matter, which is a spiritual battle. And may we do all that is necessary by the power of the Holy Spirit to be victorious. God, I pray for those who have walked in today discouraged because they're defeated. I pray that you would encourage them today that you stand by ready to take the test for them. But God, first, we have to do step one. That is, we have to submit and surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who they're just flat out, they're just being rebellious, defiant. No, I'm going to do it my way. And it's not working. It's not working at all. And God, I pray that maybe even in this very moment, in the quietness of this room, that God, they would surrender themselves to you and just say, wherever you lead me, I will follow. Acknowledging that that is the first step to victory. As it was for Jesus, so it is for us. And God, as we, you will at various times take us to those proving grounds, those places of testing. God, would you find us to be faithful, not because we have willpower, because we're strong, because we confess we're not, but our Savior is. Our Savior is. And so we proclaim victory in this place today for all of God's people and all of God's children said, Amen.